Live from historic Lamar Park in Los Angeles, California, I'm Tavis Smiley, and I'm so glad to see you and me, yeah, back in stride again. Mm. Before we get started with today's show, let me invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley, and get updates on X, that's formerly Twitter, at Tavis Smiley. By the way, should you miss any part of today's program or want to catch up on previous shows, you can always visit thetabbysmileyshow.com. That's thetabbysmileyshow.com or wherever you get your podcast and listen to the Tabby Smiley podcast version of this program at your leisure. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour. could have cut in sooner but you you can't step on that that's classic right (laughs) that is classic norman lear was the man throughout the 1970s and early 80s writing and producing hit show after hit show after hit show the jeffersons good times all in the family sanford and son maude one day at a time and the list goes on norman lear lived a long life and passed away this week at the age of 101 but not before showing future television writers and showrunners how to mix political and social messages with comedy and somehow make it all work. As one of the founders of the organization People for the American Way, Norman Lear was also an unapologetic and outspoken advocate for truth and justice. On his 100th birthday, he wrote a guest essay for the New York Times, which I referenced yesterday, saying, and I quote, To be honest, I'm a bit worried that I may be in better shape than our democracy is. Close quote. Norman Lear was brilliant. Norman Lear was my friend, a friend so dear that he once loaned me his personal copy of the Declaration of Independence for an art exhibit I curated called America I Am, the African-American imprint, which toured the country for four years. That's a true story, by the way. Only 25 copies remain of this historic document signed on July 4, 1776. And Norman Lear had one, excuse me, he had a copy which he had purchased at an auction in 2000 for just over $8 million. Only a true friend loans you an $8 million original copy of one of our nation's founding documents. You'll be happy to know that when that tour wrapped, I returned to Norman Lear in pristine condition, his personal copy of the Declaration of Independence. I've gone into my vault over the last couple of days and retrieved one of my favorite conversations with Norman Lear, when he was 95 years young, which I will share with you today in hour two. In our third hour, a conversation with Kenny Gravelis, uh, the black creative, 
Behind some iconic movie posters for Spike Lee and other Oscar-winning films, not to mention some classic album packages for Public Enemy, LL Cool J, and the notorious B.I.G. Kenny Gravelis joins us today for a creative conversation. Uh, I guess today's show is all about creativity. A tribute to Norman Lear in Hour 2 and Kenny Gravelis, this uh, brilliant brother in Hour 3. We commence today's show, though, with Rashid Khalidi, Columbia professor and author of the book, the Hundred Years War on Palestine. Professor Khalidi, good to have you on this program. How are you today, sir? I'm okay, Tavis. Thanks for having me. Man, it's my great delight and honor to have you on this program. Glad we have an hour, a lot to unpack. Uh, I've only got two minutes uh, right now uh, for this opening question. We'll get started. And of course, we got the hour. We'll continue when we come forward. But I was literally just looking at my calendar when I walked into the studio today, and the calendar reads uh, December 7th. It was October 7th. Uh, when Hamas attacked Israel. And so I don't want to color this question much more than that. We're at the two-month mark, as it were. Um, And what do you make of where we are two months in? Well, we've had two months, um, an unprecedented war, which has killed more Palestinian civilians and more Israeli civilians than either people has ever suffered in any previous war. Um, We're coming up on about 20,000 Palestinians, and there were uh, about 1,000, about 800 Israeli civilians killed and another 400 soldiers. So the casualties in this war already have exceeded the civilian casualties that either people has ever suffered in any war since 1948. So Mm. this is a cataclysmic event for the the region and for for these two peoples. And it is ongoing, so we are not yet anywhere near the end, apparently. It is a cataclysmic event, uh, and there's more to unpack regarding that, particularly given um, that Israel has once again, days ago, uh, resumed fighting, and they are moving through uh, Palestine pretty swiftly at this point. We'll get uh, more from Professor Khalidi on that uh, reality that we are witnessing in real time, and then we'll spend the rest of this hour uh, delving into his book. Um, It's always dangerous in this particular situation, frankly, in any situation, but certainly in this one, always dangerous to talk about it as if this is only uh, a moment in time. There's always a backstory. There's always a history. His book is called The Hundred Years War on Palestine. We'll delve right into it when we come forward with a Columbia professor, Rashid Khalidi, uh, on Tavis Smile. This is getting good. Yeah, man. Tavis Smiley continues when we come forward. forward. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. More of Tavis Smiley in Columbia. Professor Rashid Khalidi, author of the book, The Hundred Years, War on Palestine. Professor Khalidi, before we get into the text and this um, backstory, this long history, uh, as it were, uh, as you referenced earlier, uh, this war continues. Uh, There was talk some days ago around Thanksgiving uh, of a ceasefire. We had that sort of uh, interruption in the war for a few days, and there there were people who were hoping uh, including the Biden administration and others around the globe, that um, they might be able to convince Israel um, to extend this ceasefire. I said then on this program, I didn't think that was going to happen for a variety of reasons, many political, uh, that uh, aid and abet uh, Bibi Netanyahu, if he can stretch this thing out. I digress on that, at least for the moment. What we do know today is that this humanitarian crisis is worsening in Gaza as the fighting intensifies. We do know that uh, your earlier point about Palestine um, civilians, Palestinian civilians, uh, there is greater fear 
uh, for them because they keep being told to move as Israel is on the march. And they don't know exactly where to move to, to your earlier point as well. Mm -hmm. We are approaching about right. 20,000 uh, Palestinian deaths now in this crisis. Uh, and there are any number of questions I could ask uh, based upon that update uh, of where we are as we sit for this conversation today. I guess the first question to ask is whether or not um, you were like me or others uh, who thought that when we got to this moment, at least, of a ceasefire, that that might hold for a bit, for a bit longer than it did. Or did you know it was just a matter of time? No, I knew that it was just a matter of time. I mean, I certainly hoped it would be extended for a few more days to have more exchanges of prisoners for hostages. But it was perfectly clear, not just from what the Israeli government said, but from what the Biden administration said, that they intended to continue with this as soon as possible. Um, the Biden administration did not, I think, expect and hope that this would uh, that this uh, truce would lead to a permanent ceasefire. On the contrary, they have expressed explicitly said that they support Israel in its aim of, quote-unquote, destroying Hamas. And what that has meant is destroying the Gaza Strip. About 60 percent of the housing and, and, and other structures have been destroyed. Uh, a million and a half people, at least, maybe 1.8 million people, have been displaced. Um, and the death toll, which is array above 17,000, should probably include the 7,000 people who are missing under the rubble. So we're talking about 25,000 perhaps or 24,000 people dead in the Gaza Strip. And that is something that the Biden administration claims it wants to mitigate, but it is endorsed Israel's continuing its offensive, which means more civilians are being killed mm -hmm. every day. I mean, several hundred a day are being killed in the southern parts of Gaza and in the north. Even as this um, this death toll continues to rise, we do not as yet have an administration that uh, is willing to use the phrase ceasefire, they still right. would not use the word de-escalation. Um, how much longer, how much longer can the Biden administration go without uttering those that word or that phrase? I think it depends on us. I mean, if, if there has already been an unprecedented outpouring of opposition to the continuation of this war and a demand by m more demonstrators in that have ever come out for Palestinian rights, uh, calling for a ceasefire. I think we have to up the ante. We have to force this administration to do what it clearly does not want to or intend to do, mm -hmm. which is to, to, to use, use not, not just talk about things, but actually use the levers that it has to make Israel stop. Uh, barring that, it will not stop until they've given them, apparently, according to reports out of Israel, uh, until January or the end of January. Well, that means another six weeks of suffering, and, and only God knows how many more people killed. Mm. Um, how would you, um, this is not a softball question, um, given your critique already, but I, I really am curious uh, as to how you would, uh, I'm trying to find the right word here, um, express your views about the way up to this point the Biden administration has, has not, is, or is not handling this crisis. I was asked what grade I would give them, and I said I would give them an F minus. Um, F minus. Wow. By F minus, uh, the Biden administration has adopted every talking point that the Israelis have put out. The president speaks, spoke to in Boston at a fundraiser, repeating paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of things that are generated out of Israel. Um, he was talking. Uh, he was talking about sexual violence, but he has literally repeated every Israeli talking point again and again. Now he also sends out his Secretary of State, his Defense Secretary, and other officials to 
talk about humanitarian aid and talk about we hope Israel will restrict the the scope of its attacks on civilians and so on and so forth. But he's not his his rhetoric is clear. And if I'm the Israelis, I listen to what the president says, and I listen to what the president does not do, which is he does not try with you know action, act, actions to restrain Israel. Actions would include things like stopping shielding Israel in the Security Council, uh, things like continuing to ship the munitions that are killing all these civilians. Um, as long as he doesn't do that, whatever he says um, or whatever he has people in his administration say is going to be ignored by the Israelis. Uh, they don't under, understand anything, but the United States coming out forcefully uh, and telling them, you have to stop this now or there will be consequences. And I, there are no consequences. It's just talk. Mm -hmm. um, what is to be done uh, in real time uh, about this humanitarian crisis? Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's growing worse by the day. And it, it, it's, it's painful to watch it on television, watch it unfold in real time and to really not understand or see what the what the, what the solution is how, how do you deal with a humanitarian crisis of this magnitude when you see it growing exponentially day in and day out right well two things i don't think we're seeing it i don't think we're seeing anything like the dimensions of this israel has sealed the gaza strip off to western journalists there are no western journalists there so we do get a little bit that filters out. But mm -hmm. the, the media, generally speaking, are heavily biased in favor of the Israeli narrative. So we see it, but we only see a fraction of it. If you turn on something like a Jazeera, you will see it 12 hours, 24 hours a day. And what you will see is just film from the streets. You will just see people being pulled out of buildings and babies screaming in hospitals and hospitals unable to carry out operations. Uh, how to deal with this humanitarian crisis is simple. At the very least, there has to be the kind of truce that there was a force seven days, mercifully, which enabled a very small amount of uh, humanitarian aid to be uh, trucked into the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip normally needs about 500 trucks a day for 2.3 million people of every, every kind of good. They were getting a maximum of 100 to 200 trucks a day during the seven days of that ceasefire. You cannot deliver that kind of stuff under bombardments, as is happening now, especially since these bombardments are very near the crossing point into Egypt from which this stuff has to come. Yeah. So there has to be a stop to this. Even if it's only a temporary stop, um, at the very least, you have to have that. Obviously, you really need a ceasefire. You need to end this carnage. This is a slaughter of a civilian population. Whatever the Israelis say they're doing and whatever they argue they have to do, they are killing massive numbers of civilians. Mm. And they will continue to do that. That's the way they operate. I, they, they, they don't make any bones about it. Yeah. I always warn um, uh, with humility, with humility, I always warn my friends and, uh, uh, and listeners, uh, frankly, uh, against being a single source citizen. It's what I call being a single mm -hmm. source citizen. If you are going to be a citizen of this country or regard yourself as a citizen of the world, a global citizen, you cannot be a single source citizen. I spend a lot of time every day. Of course, this is what I do for a living. I spend a lot of time every day, you know, reading a variety of sources. Uh, you cannot right. you cannot be wed simply to American media on anything, frankly, on anything Absolutely. these days, much less when it comes to war. And here's my question. I don't ask this question out of any naivete, but why do you think? that the American media is so embedded on this issue. Let me just pray. Let me pause for a second. It's one thing if we are at war, and in some ways one could argue this is a proxy war that we're engaged in, uh, not just with Russia and Ukraine, but with, with Hamas in Israel. One could argue it's a proxy war. But we're not directly engaged or involved here, number one. 
Uh, and so if we're at war, I can, you know, I don't like it, but I can understand at least how I can see how and why the American media is so embedded in the story because they're literally embedded with the military. But on this particular issue, mm-hmm. why is the American media, to your to your point, to your mind, so embedded that it leads to essentially a brainwashing of the American public? I mean, there are many reasons for this, Tavis, and I, I think you're right about looking at alternate sources. I mean, I personally don't regard the American media as at all reliable on this. I look at the Israeli media and I look at Arab media mm-hmm. <laughs> and I look at other international media and they're infinitely more reliable. I mean, the New York Times is more biased than, than Haaretz or, or the Israel Times, frankly. Mm. Uh, now, why are they so biased? Well, there's multiple reasons. Think about uh, who the senior editors and producers of, 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 uh, of uh, newspapers and, uh, and, uh, t- and, and, and cable TV are. There are people who grew up in the 60s. They only had one narrative, an Israeli narrative. There was no Palestinian narrative in 1970 or 1960 or even 1980. Palestinians barely existed um, in in people's minds. They existed, but people didn't know they did in the United States. And the media aided and abetted that because everybody had grown up thinking Israel was this wonderful country that made the desert bloom, only democracy in the Middle East, and so on and so forth. And that was the only thing in people's minds. That's all they knew. That's the generation that controls the media. That's also the generation that owns the media. You know, MSNBC isn't a TV station. It's part of NBC Universal, which is a huge corporation. The New York Times, there are owners, and so on and so forth. And that's actually true of our politicians. People like the president, who's 81 years old, they grew up in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And they have a, an idealistic vision of Israel, which has actually no place for the Palestinians. So I think it's partly a generational thing. You know, especially, I, I, I don't mean to be, you know, too blunt about this, old white guys. You know, you, you look at, you look at the, the diverse population in the United States and you look at where support for Palestine comes. It comes from all over the spectrum in this country, especially young people and especially minorities. And that's, those are not the people who control, you know, the media or our politics. It's mainly mm-hmm. much older people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they tend to be conservative, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. So and look, at the, look at the leadership of both political parties. They're completely pro-Israel. Yeah. Um, I take that point about um, who um, are most sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinian people, young people and people of color. And it's a brilliant point you've made exactly. that we are not the ones who control the narrative. <laughs> so it, it makes sense when you exactly. think about it. But, but, <laughs> let, but let, 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 me, let me just say this to you. Uh, let, me, let me ask you a question. If I said to you, based on what you've just said now, I was literally in a conversation about this just 48 hours ago. If I said to you uh, now, as I will, that 25 years from now, mm-hmm. you would not recognize American policy vis-a-vis Israel. It's going to be dramatically different because, to your point, all those old white guys are dying off, number one. Mm-hmm. In, in 25 years, America, for the first time ever, will be majority minority. The white folk will be, the good right. white folk will finally be outnumbered in this country. These young people who are now protesting will be the public officials. They'll be the ones Mm -hmm. uh, in positions of helping to craft this narrative. And if I said to you in 25 years, uh, no matter how longstanding our foreign policy has been uh, in terms of the coziness with Israel, it will not be that way 25 years from now. It'll be dramatically different because of all that you've just laid out. If I said that, said to you, that's exactly what's going to happen, how confident would you be that my narrative is correct? I think you may be right, Tavis. I mean, I, 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 I grew up in New York. I've lived all over the world, but I, I grew up in New York. 
And I have seen, and I've watched various stages of American bias and slantedness and support for Israel over, you know, my whole lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I have never seen such rapid change in views, especially among young people, especially among people of color, among young young Jewish students, among uh, students from every every ethnic background, as I have seen over the past five or ten years. I would not actually be surprised at that prediction coming true. I mean, I hope it does, and of course it may not. But I I think you may be right. Yeah. We shall see. Um, I just think that um, it, it doesn't require rocket science. You, you ain't got to be a rocket scientist to look at the, uh, read the tea leaves or uh, to see the writing, the handwriting on the wall, that as mm-hmm. as these persons age out and frankly die off, uh, and younger persons who have different points of view uh, become uh, the 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 arbiters of the narrative. I think it's going to change in time. Let me ask you this question with just two minutes to go. We'll continue when we come forward. Uh, I, I note that you've been at a number of rallies, including one uh, with my friend Michelle Alexander in New York and others mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. No, of note. Right. Uh, how, how do you read um, so many persons, um, including Susan Sarandon? It's a, it's a long list. Folk who are being canceled for the things they're saying at some of these rallies. Well, I think this speaks to the pushback. You know, the, 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 the people who control the commanding heights of our economy and the people who control Columbia University and all the Ivy League universities, the people who own them, by which I mean the boards of trustees, the corporations, they actually are the owners of these universities. Mm-hmm. They're the owners of the media. These people are not going to give up without a fight. They see, you see numbers, the majority of Democrats, the majority of black people, the majority of young people oppose the president's policy, want a ceasefire are more sympathetic to the Palestinians than they are to the Israelis. They see these changes, and they're not going to give up without a fight. And they're going to go in with bare knuckles, and they're going to cancel people. They're going to shut down speech, free speech. They're going to do everything they can to force an Israeli, continue to force an Israeli narrative uh, on people, and to penalize people who will not go along with that, silence them, intimidate them. Bully them. That's yeah. what we're having in, on, on university campuses right yeah. now. The administrations are responding to trustees so, and donors and politicians who want them to do that. So speaking of university campuses, you've probably seen this. Uh, and if you haven't, you need to see it and you need to hear it. Since it's a radio, I'll play it for you. We're going to find it. I have Miles pull it up. I'm going to play it for you. Speaking of university campuses, um, yesterday there was a grilling of the president of Harvard, uh, University of Pennsylvania, UPenn, a grilling uh, in Congress yesterday, and it got ugly. It got vicious. And now there are people calling for the resignation of the president of the University of Pennsylvania. But if you did not see this, you have to hear this exchange between a particular and certain congresswoman and the presidents of these Ivy League institutions. Wait till you hear this when we come forward with, with uh, Professor Rashid Khalidi of Columbia, speaking of the Ivy League, uh, on Tavis Smiley. <laughs> More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Tavis Smiley in dialogue with Columbia professor Rashid Khalidi and author of the book The Hundred Years War on Palestine. Um, so, Professor Khalidi, I want to share with you uh, and the audience. I'm sure you've heard this already. But I want the audience to hear. This exchange yesterday between New York Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik and the president of UPenn, speaking of the Ivy League, Liz McGill. Uh, Before I play that clip, uh, just to underscore what Professor Khalidi said moments ago, that um, Gen Z and these young millennials often see Israel as an occupying power, 
uh, oppressing Palestinians a shock, of course, to their parents and their grandparents who tend to see it as an essential haven uh, fighting for survival. And so that's the point that Professor Khalidi made moments ago, that there's one generation that sees this crisis or this uh, this process of what happens in the Middle East through one lens. There's another generation that sees it through another lens and this generation uh, right now that sees it through a different lens, as I just described, is the generation, of course, that are on college campuses. And you have seen uh, these protests. You've heard great conversation about these protests. You've heard folk being dismissive of these young people who are uh, uh, sympathetic to the Palestinian plight. And yesterday it all came to a head when, uh, again, New York Representative Elise Stefanik grilled the president of UPenn, Liz McGill. Hear it for yourself. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. After that exchange with the president of UPenn, um, she then went after the president of Harvard, who was seated right next to the president of UPenn on, uh, at the table uh, in this hearing in Congress. And so she went after UPenn's president, after Harvard's president. The president of Harvard, her answer uh, was not much different than the president of UPenn. Uh, as you well know, there's a black woman, Sister Gay. President Gay is now the president of Harvard, uh, a black woman, uh, first time ever. So they both got grilled by this congresswoman yesterday. Uh, Professor Khalidi, you are at Columbia. You're on one of these Ivy League campuses. Uh, you see these protests. Uh, you've appeared at some of these rallies. Uh, what did you make of this exchange, uh, quite an exchange, yesterday? Well, Stefanik was operating like a prosecutor and asking, you know, when did you stop beating your wife question? In fact, there have been no calls for genocide on college campuses. And so she was setting up a trap. Um, it's a part of a Republican uh, ploy to argue that uh, issues of diversity, what they call wokeness, uh, issues of, of free speech uh, should basically be shut down. It's, you know, part of the cultural war that the Republican Party is, is, is waging. Um, and it is part also of their extraordinary support for Israel uh, and, and conflation of any criticism with Israel with anti-Semitism, and in this case with, quote-unquote, a genocide. I mean, there are no calls for genocide that I've heard uh, on college campuses. Uh, and and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complete red herring 
uh, on her part, but it is it is typical of what we're what we're experiencing on college campuses. That kind of pressure from the right, which is not just coming from politicians, it's coming from trustees, from powerful economic interests, uh, from donors, uh, is directed at shutting down any expression of support for Palestinian rights and describing it as terrorist or anti-Semitic or genocidal. Mm. Um, just want to get your temperature on that. Um, thank you for for your uh, for your response um, to what we heard yesterday and saw all over the news uh, in this uh, sort of uh, this hearing that got out of control, uh, if I can put it that way. And to your point, she was in fact acting like a prosecutor, acting like a prosecutor. Uh, and it's always fascinating to me to watch people uh, in uh, congressional testimony. I've I've had that experience uh, in congressional testimony, and they start asking these. Uh, yeah, to your point, did you did you when did you stop beating your wife? Questions. It, it's it's uh, it's fascinating exactly. to watch persons have to sort of navigate uh, that those sort of got you uh, got you hearings. I digress on that for now. Um, I want to spend the rest of our time uh, uh, that we have left here talking about the history. I began this conversation almost forty five minutes ago by suggesting uh, I've been at this game long enough uh, as a broadcaster to know that in any particular conflict, if you only look at this as a snapshot in in real time. Then um, you you don't you don't get the full story. My friend Jesse Jackson, uh, senior, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, uh, said to me many many years ago, Tavis, <clears throat> content without context is pretext. That's Jesse Jackson. He makes everything a rhyme, and I love it, but it's brilliant. Content without context is pretext. So how do you have a conversation about the content? without putting it in its proper context. Uh, you wrote the book, The Hundred Years War on Palestine. Say a bit more about the context of the content that we are experiencing in real time. Well, I actually think you're asking exactly the right question. Because to pretend that history started on October 7th is to falsify reality. To pretend that anything um, doesn't have a context, a historical context, um, is to simplify it and, uh, and weaponize it. And that is, I think, what has happened since October 7th. I mean, something deplorable and horrible happened on October 7th and has been happening ever since. But I think you have to understand that within the historical context. And that is really what I, I mean, I wrote this book uh, two and a half, three years ago. But that is what I was trying to do with this book, to explain the context in which events, including events in Gaza up, up until the time that the book was published, um, have to be understood. You can't understand uh, a rocket exchange between uh, Israel and Hamas in 2014 without understanding who are the people in Gaza. Well, three-quarters of them are Palestinians who were driven from their homes and their lands in 1948 and penned up in the Gaza Strip. If you don't understand that context, you understand nothing. They just seem like guys across the border who are, you know, for no good reason, harassing these poor Israelis. The Israeli settlements around Gaza were established on the lands and in the place of the villages of the people who were driven into Gaza and have been uh, refugees there or, or descendants of refugees ever since. You don't understand that. I have to, I have to say you don't really understand a great deal. You see events you know, unidimensionally, ahistorically, and usually in a way that can be weaponized and twisted. And so I, 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 I try and lay out in the book uh, the, the, the various elements of the background to understand that, for example, this is not just a war between Israelis and Palestinians. It's, it's a war in which great powers have been involved directly on the side of Israel, whether it was Britain during the mandate before World War II, or whether it's been the United States ever since. The United States is an active participant in this war. The weapons are American. The diplomatic support at the at the United Nations that prevents condemnations of Israel is American. The United States is an active participant. The United States gives green lights 
The United States gave a green light for the 67 war. The United States gave a green light for the 1982 invasion of Lebanon. And President Biden is giving Israel a green light right now. When we come forward, I want I want to, I want to interrogate that um, the U.S. It seems to me is engaged presently in at least two proxy wars. Uh, I want to talk about that and say nothing of the fact that when we do get engaged uh, militarily, it's by drone. We no longer want to put boots on the ground. Uh, there's a fundamental shift. What I'm getting at here is there's a fundamental shift in the way the U.S. is waging war these days. It's not like the old days. It ain't like Vietnam. It ain't World War One. It ain't World War Two. There's a fundamental shift in how we engage the world in war. I want to interrogate that with uh, Rashid Khalidi when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Rank number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley in Columbia, Professor Rashid Khalidi, to be exact. He's author of the book, The Hundred Years War on Palestine. Before I get into my critique of the way that we wage war uh, has changed over the over the years, Professor Khalidi, um, just an update on what you what you said earlier. Um, so this number of 20, 25,000, whatever the number is, it's climbing every day. Uh, there is no de-escalation. There is no ceasefire. There is no truce. Israel is on the march. So these numbers are going to get worse. Here's what's important to understand. That Gazan civilians, that's the key phrase here, Gazan civilians are dying at a faster rate than civilians did during the most intense U.S. attacks in Afghanistan or Iraq. In Ukraine, the number of civilian deaths appears to be much higher in the tens of thousands than in Gaza, but... Ukraine's death toll has occurred over almost two years in a country with a population more than 20 times that of Gaza. Uh, And so um, that gives you some context to how bad, how horrific these numbers are. And again, they are intensifying. Um, These are high Mm -hmm. numbers. These are high numbers for any kind of war. Um, The numbers are just uh, hard to, to wrap your brain around. All that to say, there's been a shift in the way we engage war in this country. We Um, are in a proxy war against Russia by giving bombs and other materials to Ukraine. We are in a proxy war against Hamas uh, by supporting Israel. And when we do get directly involved, there's some some kid uh, in the in in the military using a joystick out in Nevada somewhere uh, using a drone to drop bombs around the world. What say you about the way that we the, the, the change in the way that we the U.S wage war through proxy or through drones? Well, I think that it, it it's a way of dehumanizing war. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a way of obviously decreasing casualties uh, on the side of the, of the technologically advanced power, whether it's the United States or Israel. But it's also a way of distancing you from the, from the, from the consequences. I mean, the New York Times did an investigative piece on the killing of civilians in Syria by similar kinds of weapons, drones, and, and, and so forth. And, you know, it's clear that if you kill somebody directly, even if it involves firing an artillery shell or a tank shell at them, you are, you are engaged directly with the enemy. If you're sitting in Nevada or you're sitting somewhere in Israel in, 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 in uh, Beersheba or something like that, pushing a button, mm-hmm. uh, the, the consequences are at a great distance from you. And it enables... It enables 
you to to you your country more importantly to deny responsibility i mean the people killed in gaza are being killed mainly by that kind of distance weapons whether air, whether aircraft or mm-hmm. helicopters or drones also being killed by tank and artillery and, and regular artillery fire mm-hmm. and nobody talks about the killing of civilians in terms of in the in the mainstream media at least in terms of war crimes or crimes against humanity if someone kills people face to face it is described as terrorism it's described as the worst form of barbarism i mean they're all dead mm-hmm. you kill them with a clashing cough or you kill them with a drone they're dead and if they're innocent civilians it should be considered a war yeah. crime it should be considered a violation of international humanitarian law but somehow when we do it with you know mechanical yeah. means mm-hmm. it's not yeah our many moments with uh columbia professor rashid khalidi um sobering thought there when we come forward on tavis smiling Seeking the truth, speaking the truth. This, this is the Tavis Smiley Show. Show. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. Got about three minutes left here with Columbia Professor Rashid Khalidi. His book is called The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Just three minutes left here. Um, As you know, Professor Khalidi, um, uh, Senate Republicans yesterday, Mitch McConnell, for all those freezes that he had in public and people saying he needed to step aside and uh, I believe he should but he's still pretty brilliant Uh, he knows how to strategize uh, what he wants to get accomplished in the Senate Uh, and yesterday he led Republicans in blocking an aid bill for Ukraine and for Israel uh, demanding changes to immigration policy that's a that's another conversation for another time my point is that yesterday they stopped funding for Israel they stopped at least temporarily funding for Ukraine one what do you make of that and secondly I'll get out of your way with two and a half minutes left um, I don't see any inducement at this point uh, any leverage to stop BB Netanyahu from this continuing assault take it away with the two minutes I have left well, firstly, I think that the administration is trying to jam through unpopular Ukraine aid with uh, aid for Israel, which will pass this Congress with flying colors. And sooner or later, they'll decouple them and they'll get the money for Israel. I don't think there's any doubt of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that the president and the administration have levers over Israel. The question is, do they have the political courage to use those levers? Mm-hmm. Do they have the political courage to stand up to donors? Do they have the political courage to stand up to the attacks that they're going to get from the Republicans? Do they have the political courage to follow the majority? of Democrats, uh, of, the, of the base, the rank and file of the party who want them to do this. I have not seen that courage from this president, and I believe that it is also a matter of belief with him. He has a deep-dyed belief in the saintliness of Israel, and he doesn't see the Palestinians. I don't believe he sees them at all. So I'm very doubtful that he will use levers that I actually do believe that he has mm. uh, to, to force the Israelis to stop this sooner than they're otherwise going to. Otherwise, they'll go on, in my view, for weeks and months. He might not see Palestinians, but he does see American voters, and one could argue that he's already lost significant ground in his re-election campaign given those persons who he has, he's turned off who said they'll never vote for him given what he's done already. Precisely, precisely. I think he, he actually stands a risk of losing a number of swing states like Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would think of New Jersey could be in play, uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, you, you take enough uh, uh, voters young voters, young Jewish voters, black voters, uh, Arab and Muslim voters who are alienated over this. If it continues into the spring, I can see this having an effect on the election in some of those swing states. 
We shall see. Uh, we shall see. Of course, the other side of that is that um, their option is Donald Trump. Assuming he's the presumptive yeah. Republican nominee. So maybe they don't vote for Biden. Maybe they just stay home. Either way, neither one of those scenarios works out well for Joe Biden. I digress. Rashid Khalidi, professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University and author of the text, The Hundred Years War on Palestine. Professor Khalidi, thank you for your insights. Good to have you on. All the best to you, sir. And happy holidays. Thanks so much for having me, Tavis. My great honor.